Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and we're going to be talking about the Kingdom of God. And uh, we're going to talk about uh, how you seek it. And we're going to talk about the laws that are in the Kingdom of God already. Uh, The Kingdom of God doesn't have a legislature that passes new laws. Uh, The Kingdom of God doesn't have men who rule over you. The Kingdom of God is ruled over by God. So, How does God rule? God rules through the law of nature. Uh, The law of nature is specifically defined as the divine will or dictate of right reason, showing the moral deformity or moral necessity that there is in an act according to its uh, suitableness or unsuitableness to a reasonable nature. Now, of course, Even listening to that definition, which is not yet complete, I've got a little bit more to add to that. What is reasonable? Reasonable isn't what you think is true. Reasonable is what is true. You may be able to get to what is true by reasoning in your own mind, but that is is an opinion of what is reasonable. What is reasonable is actually what is true. It has a little bit to do with the way that the word reason was used, you know, a couple hundred years ago in the way we use it today. There's an awful lot of people that think they are reasonable, but they are not. And just because you think you're reasonable doesn't make it so. Uh, The definition goes on to say, sometimes used of the law of human reason, which is what I just spoke about, in contradistinction to the revealed law, and sometimes of both, in contradistinction to positive law. So then somebody might ask, what's positive law? Positive laws is really law that has been enacted by men, which is the law of a legal system. And it's the law of contract. You create a legal system with a series of contracts and uh, agreements among men, which is contracts. Contracts isn't always, I'm going to buy this much stuff. Contracts is agreements between people. You two people get together and they agree we're going to do it this way, and if we don't do it this way, we're going to we uh, agree to adjudication by these people over here, and that's how you create governments that are state type governments is that you create them through agreements. And once your parents have made the agreement, then you're born into that agreement because you are born subject to your parents. You did not give yourself life. You did not give yourself rights. Your rights come from your parents, from generation to generation. And if your parents waive a right so that they can live, when you're born, that right is waived. That's just natural law. You can't, you can't, your parents can't give you more than they have already. If they've given up their rights, when you're born, you inherit only what they have. You cannot inherit what they have given up already. So you you can be literally born in slavery. A lot of people don't want to think that. They think we have inalienable rights and they imagine that they're free 
or that they have all these rights intact because they're standing upright as an individual. But they're only standing upright as an individual because they were born of their mother's womb and because their parents gave them life. Now, their parents may not have raised them. Their parents may have turned them over to somebody else to raise them, such as the state. And we do that every time we look to the state for a benefit. You know, WIC programs or aid to dependent mothers or, you know, food stamps, welfare, public school. Public school is welfare. Every time you reach out for those benefits from government to help you raise your child, your child becomes more a child of the state. And that's that's natural law. Now, the state doesn't have to pass a statute that says that if you take these benefits, that you become our civil child. They don't need a statute to do that. They will depend upon natural law. What the legal system is, and I used this analogy last night in responding to somebody, which I can probably pull up the uh, response on our, our network, that, you know, they're always looking for, you know, they see, they feel the bondage of the world. They feel that they are, you know, uh, subject. They feel the pain of being under tribute, which is, you know, they have to pay income tax. That's tribute. Tribute is what you pay your rulers. And uh, if you're under tribute, that's that's a burden. And uh, it may not be a bad thing that you're under tribute because maybe you need to feel that burden. Because this is why God allows men to create governments is to punish the wicked. And one of the ways the wicked are punished is they are heavily taxed by their rulers. Well, how did they get rulers to begin with? Well, they themselves were wicked. They, they rejected God. And they chose to have rulers over them. Rather than set things right themselves... They chose to give power to other men to set things right. We did this with Saul in the Bible. They rejected God and elected Saul as king through Samuel. Now, it says in Deuteronomy that if you do decide to elect a king, that you should write down these four basic precepts and you should have your priests read them to that king every day. Well, we see Saul immediately violating one of those precepts. And and Samuel coming in and saying to Saul, you've done this foolish thing. And what did he do? He imposed a tax upon the people. He forced an offering. He forced the people to give an offering to support the military because he feared that the uh, enemy was going to attack and he, his soldiers were not ready. They needed more supplies, whatever it was. And so he forced an offering to supply his soldiers so that they would be prepared for an attack from the enemy. But Samuel said he had done this foolish thing. Now, to me, when I read that text and look at it in the Hebrew and look at it even in the English, understanding what I do about how the sacrifices of Israel were made, I see right away that, oh my gosh, the foolish thing that caused his kingdom not to stand was that he taxed the people to support the military for the protection of the people. I mean, it was a good cause. I mean, if the people were overrun, they would wish they had supported the army. But they, uh, 
And there wasn't evidently a terrible outcry about forcing this task because the people knew that the army needed to be supported. But he compelled them. He forced an offering. And that was the great sin of that government, of Saul. And But the really, the greatest sin was the people looked to the government to make things right, to make things righteous. He looked to Saul to begin with. That was already a rejection of God. You're allowed to do that, but not with impunity. You will suffer the consequences, and God knows it, and it's built into the law of nature. The law of nature is going to make you suffer. So, anyway, somebody had an idea, and I said I'd talk about it today, so let's get it out of the way, and then we can go on to things that... uh, will kind of hopefully cohese this idea of the kingdom together in your own mind. But he had a big, long, involved way of um, avoiding, he believes he's avoiding income tax because he says most Americans are not obligated to pay income tax. And he said, I've read the laws. And he has evidently looked at a great deal of the laws. But again, the legal system... And this is the way I responded to him. I said, while the word legal comes from the Latin to bind, it is not the legal system that binds you. The legal system constructs a box, a cage, whatever you want to call it. You know, cage, box, that's all relative. You think that, uh, you know, when you put your pet frog in a shoebox, that you put him in a box. But he sees it as a cage. Of course, he doesn't really think about it. But uh, to him, that's a cage. From his point of view, the box that you've got him in to protect him is a cage. So, if you want out of the box, the cage, you have to think out of the box, the cage. And the fact is, most people are not thinking out of the cage. They're actually desiring to cage others. In other words, to put other people in a box, to force other people to provide them with WIC, public education, health care, take care of my parents in their old age so that I don't have to take care of them. I don't have to go out and get a job and work every day to make sure that I have a house and food for my parents. I don't have to honor my parents Because the state will honor my parents through Social Security and welfare and Medicaid and Medicare. I don't have to do it. I can go off and pretend to be whatever. You know, an ambassador to the kingdom of heaven. But I don't have to take it. I do no more ought for my parents. Or very little ought for my parents. Um... My parents, we built a house for my parents. They could actually afford a house of their own, but we built a house for my parents. When my mother, my father passed away eventually, and when my mother was ill and and went into the hospital and came out to what they call a rehab place, we ended up renting a house, uh, kind of an apartment, where we could put her in that rather than in the assisted living care and we took turns to go down there and take care of her. And uh, when my mother passed away, I was holding her hand. I felt her last heartbeat in, in her, you know, feeling her wrist. I could feel her heartbeat. And we had laughed and joked around that day. We could have done a better job of taking care of my parents 
than we did. But we felt compelled to do that. And that's the way it should be. But a lot of people aren't taking care of their parents. They don't really feel that need and responsibility to take care of their parents. And a lot of times their parents won't. You know, after we built the house, my folks lived there for a while. But then eventually my father went back to California because his eyes got better and he was going to maybe dabble in the practice of law. He was a lawyer. And uh, although he was past retirement age, he thought he was going to do that and write. But then suddenly was struck by cancer just after he moved away. But those were his choices. We had made provisions for him and for my mom. And we did it just because it was written in us to do that. Other people, they don't even think about it. Well, my parents, they got their Social Security and they got more money than I do and I don't need to worry about them and so I'll go off and do this other thing. No, no, that's not what God said to do. He said, honor thy father and thy mother. And that word honor is actually the same word for liver and the same word for fatten. It is you're supposed to be taking care of your parents and providing for them or at least be ready to do it. And that is so that your days will be long upon the land. People, and Yet I know somebody who doesn't do that, didn't even take care of his own wife and children, and he refers to himself as a man upon the land. Well, he isn't on the land. He did not follow the natural law. The Ten Commandments are telling you, uh, uh, giving you an insight into the natural law. They're not even laws. They call them commandments, but they're really guidelines trying to tell you how the system should operate, how you should work together as a people. And, you know, if you find yourself murdering people or causing the death of people or, say, like bombing whole countries with tens of thousands of bombs, you're a murderer. If you find yourself aborting tens of thousands of children and encouraging that by the system you created, by the box that you have created, you're a murderer. You're not keeping the Ten Commandments. Now, you can go out and protest and say, oh, we don't want people to do this. And that may ease your conscience. But the fact is, you have created a box in which that is likely to happen to tens of thousands of children. Like I said in our um, video where people have asked me about abortion, abortion, abortion is a symptom of the fact that we have fallen away from the ways of God. The ways of the of God and and nature's God, and so that people can actually rationalize killing a baby in their womb for their convenience, for their personal convenience, and they think that's okay. And you can argue against it, but the reality is, and and that's fine to argue against it, but the reality is, the the acceptance of that idea is a product of an acceptance of other ideas before it. It's like they've gone down this certain road to death and destruction of unborn children, of people in other countries that you don't even know, and all that's okay. I mean, like, if somebody was robbing a bank and they had, you know, 20, 30 hostages in there and you wanted to stop the five bank robbers that are in there, could the police go and fire a grenade launcher into the bank to kill the bad guys. 
No, no, it would be outrageous. You wouldn't do that. You would kill all the hostages. Uh, and many innocent people would die. And that would just be unacceptable of the police to do that. Yet, the entire country does that every day in foreign lands. They bomb cities and people. Now, they, they try to tell us that we have smart bombs, but, uh, you know, even... You know, in the famous Iraqi war with its smart bombs, and we're supposed to be these precision targets and everything. You know, most of the people that were at those precision targets were forced to be there by the a military regime. You know, totalitarian dictators. Saddam Hussein forced those people to be drafted and put there. They didn't choose to go into those places. They were forced. And I'm sure there were some that chose, but we just blew them all away. Because we chose that path just to blow everybody up. And millions, millions of people died in Iraq. Some from bombs, some from starvation, some from disease. You know, we bombed the infrastructure so that uh, there was no water uh, that people could drink. They had to go down to rivers and streams and a desert place and, and sewage plants and everything was destroyed. And thousands died. I mean, they had uh, cholera show up. All kinds of problems show up. And people died because of that. We killed the hostages. We killed, you know, supposedly we liberated people, but we killed millions of innocent people whose only crime was they were born in Iraq. And it's almost impossible not to do that if you decide to invade a country militarily. I mean, it, it should be expected that that's going to happen. And it was expected. And that was acceptable. But that kind of thinking is the same as firing grenade launchers into a bank where there are five holdup people and, uh, and 20 hostages. We know all the hostages are probably going to die, but we'll stop the bank robbers. That's outrage in a police action in our country. But evidently it's okay in a police action in another country. But it isn't in the law of nature. You have sowed the wind and now you're going to reap the whirlwind. That, the same death and destruction that we've seen in all these other lands, and I'm not... I'm not discussing the political ramifications. I could do that. I could tell you really what was going on behind the scenes and how it was a planned deal from the beginning. Of course, we've heard all that on the news, but some people will accept that and some people will not. But you can go do your own research. But I'm just talking about the principles of being willing to kill other people because you don't even know them. It's the old red button uh, syndrome that we seem to all have that if you push this button you will get a million dollars or a billion dollars or whatever and somebody somewhere you don't even know will die and the guy pushes the button and then somebody comes and collects the box and as he's, and gives them the check and as he's going out the door the guy asks him where are you going to take the box I'm going to give it to somebody you absolutely do not know in other words, that other person will be able to push that button and get a million bucks and the guy who just got the check is going to die. Because as you judge, so shall you be judged. That's part of the law of nature. So anyway, let's go back to this 
so that we get this in the first part of the show, this legal system that you created, this box. It isn't the legal system. You're not going to find in the law that says if you do this, this will bind you. Natural law tells us that if you take from your neighbor for your personal benefit, public school, take care of my parents, whatever it is, then it is absolutely lawful for your neighbor to take from you for his personal benefit. And what you have done is reduced an entire society to an animalistic dog-eat-dog world. If you can get the votes, you can get the benefit at the expense of your neighbor. And that's what the law of nature tells you. That as you judge, so shall you be judged. That's the law of nature that Jesus is talking about. You create the law that binds you. This legislature doesn't have to create the law. They create a mechanism. They, they create a box. They create a jail. But they don't lock the door. You lock the door. You know, we've seen the comedy shows, you know, like uh, Andy and Mayberry, and uh, they put Otis in the jail, but Otis can get the keys and get out anytime he wants. He just he chooses to be in the jail because that's a place for him to sleep it off. And uh, so he can leave anytime he wants, but he likes it in jail when he's sleeping it off. It's peaceful. It's comfortable. He doesn't have to go home. And so, we do the same thing. We create this jail. We lock ourselves in it. But they don't lock us in it. We lock ourselves in it. Now you say suddenly you want out. But the one who's locked you in is the law of nature. You have to change your way. And and you were born to this. And like, and, and it's amazing how many people think, well, I I don't want the benefit. But you got the benefit. I mean, did you go to public school? Are you taking care of your parents? Are you prepared to take care of your parents? Is that an option for your parents? To come to you rather than take Social Security? No, not likely. But you are going to be... You're going to set yourself free by the legal janglings and wranglings of reading the statutes. But it isn't the statutes that put you into bondage. It's the law of nature and nature's God. Because you did not, you were not righteous. You were not following the ways of righteousness. You were following the ways of unrighteousness. And there's a hundred ways besides, you know, going to public school and, uh, and taking these benefits that you do this. And we're going to talk about some of those different ways, but we're also going to talk about what you can do to reverse the law of nature that you will automatically just wake up one morning and you'll be free and you will even survive freedom. Because that's the trick. Everybody could, you know, Moses could take you to the edge of the desert and say, you're free, run for it. But you may not survive. So he had a plan that you could survive. Freedom. We'll talk about that when we return to Keys of the Kingdom.
Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So, what is this, uh, you know, the uh, these legal systems that we see in all the lands of the world that are created by men who contract with one another by agreements? I mean, like, why am I subject to the Constitution when I didn't sign it? Well, actually, my parents didn't even sign it. <laughs> And uh, my grandfather and great-grandfather, who were all here at the time. Well, well not all my great-grandfathers, but the, I had many great-grandfathers uh, that were here at that time. And uh, they didn't sign it. As a matter of fact, most people in America, at the time that the Constitution took effect, were against, opposed to the Constitution. That Historians agree on that. That isn't even a debatable item. Most Americans opposed the Constitution of the United States when it was agreed to by whom? By the states. So when it says, we the people of the United States, they're not talking about the people of America. They're talking about the people of the United States. And at the time that that was signed, that document was signed, the people of the United States were the people who signed at the bottom of that document. That was it. That was the total totality of the people of the United States when the Constitution of the United States was signed. Was all those names at the bottom. If you don't see the name there, they are not we the people. They simply were not we the people because their names don't appear at the bottom of the document. Now, later on, because of this agreement that those men had, Amongst themselves, they all came into one accord about the Constitution. But it didn't have any effect in the states. The states hadn't agreed to it. The states didn't send them with the power to make an agreement on their behalf. So it didn't include the states. The states had to individually ratify it. And the states had already made an agreement that they were willing to agree to the Articles of Confederation. But if they wanted to change one dot, tittle of the Articles of Confederation. Just change one little comma. They had to all agree. Unanimous agreement or they could not change anything in the Articles of Confederation. And here they wanted to almost scrap the Articles of Confederation and create this entirely new government called the, the, you know, the United States. And they didn't necessarily all want to do that. But they had agreed that they wouldn't change anything unless there was a unanimous agreement. Well, nine states eventually agreed and they implemented the Constitution of the United States even though there were several states that had not yet agreed and actually were holding out. And they imposed sanctions, trade sanctions, on those states, including Rhode Island, and then those states eventually capitulated and signed the agreements. But those states were state governments agreeing to be a part of this new institution. And they, they elected congressmen and senators to go to the United States government and become senators, swear in as senators and congressmen for that government. Those were now, we the people, the congressmen and senators 
who agreed to that, and eventually the employees of the United States, you know, because they would hire certain people to do certain functions, you know. I mean, they created a United States Postal Service, etc., and so they had employees. And all those people who became employed by the United States became we the people of the United States, at least as long as they were employed by the United States. They were we the people. They could quit their job. They could, you know, resign as senators and congressmen and they would no longer be we the people of the United States. They would go back to their states and they would be local state citizens only. It's kind of like dual citizenship. That's the way it worked. Now, we don't think in those terms because we've been trained up to think another way by public education, etc., but now if you if you actually look at it, we the people were the, we the people of the United States and the states were separate to each other as Mexico is to Canada. Clark's summary of U.S. American law. So that's that's the way the system was working at first. But things have changed over the last 200 years. And some of those things changed because of statutes. But most of those things have changed because of your personal relationship with the United States government. So you've become we the people. You've become we the people because you've become employees of the United States federal government. You become citizens of the United States federal government and residents in your local states. A resident is a foreigner living in a particular jurisdiction. So you're all residents of Oregon and New Jersey and California and you call yourself residents of those. So you don't, you, you may sometimes say I'm a citizen of California, but really you're a citizen of the United States. You get a passport from the United States. You're an employee of the United States. You say, well, wait a minute. I'm not an employee of the United States. You have an employee, federal employee identification number called the social security number. So you're an employee, you're a citizen. Of the, now, some people want to say, well, I'm a, you know, nationalist. But you're, and then there are some people who want to say that they're state citizens. But the states are now corporations of the United States. They, you know, all their, all their congressmen and senators are, what? They're, <laughs> those congressmen and senators of the individual states are also citizens of the United States and employees of the United States. Uh, you know, although some senators and congressmen in some states, I don't know how many states this is, I haven't looked into it, they don't even get paid by the state. It, the, the congressmen are not paid positions. Did you know that? I was amazed when I found that out. Uh, and I, it'd be interesting to find out how many states do that where the congressmen and senators are not paid employees of the state but almost all of them are federal employees in some way or other at least they have a federal employee identification number which we call a social security number so statuses have changed by choice some people say well i didn't have any other choice i had to do this my parents got me the number and all this kind of stuff well yeah because you're not born in a vacuum your parents get to sell you into slavery they get to curse you with debt and that, you know, if you go to the New Testament, it tells you 
that you would again become entangled in the elements of the world. You would become entangled in the yoke of bondage. And it said how and why you would become entangled in that yoke of bondage. It didn't say that somebody would pass a statute and enslave you. It didn't say that somebody else would come in and enslave you. It said, through covetous practices, you would be made merchandise. Through those covetous practices, you would curse your children with what? Bondage. Through debt. And why? Because you haven't been keeping the law of nature and haven't been listening to nature's God. For one thing, you've made covenants. All kinds. Your parents have made covenants and your parents' parents have made covenants, contracts, and constitutions which you were forbidden to do in the Bible. You were to make no other men your gods. Nobody else was to decide right and wrong for you. But you did. Now, you grew up in modern religion or in, you know, different people have different backgrounds. So maybe you, you didn't come from a very religious family. But you have made gods of men. They decide what is good and evil. They pass laws. They're sovereign. You're not. You never were sovereign for anybody else. God did not give man the power to rule over his brother. But he's been trying to do it. That's the sin of Cain, isn't it? Tried to rule over his brother. Tried to rule over the earth and the people in the earth. That's what he, that is what Nimrod did. That's what Caesar did. That's what all these guys do is they try to rule over other people. And you want to rule over other people for personal benefit. And that's why you're in bondage. Now, some of you say, well, I don't want to rule over other people. I don't want those benefits. But you haven't, you have, you have, you have been a part of this system. You have taken benefits of this system. You may not have had any choice. And what, how did Israel go into bondage in Egypt? Did they have any choice? Yeah, they had a choice. They could starve. Or agree to the Pharaoh and sell themselves so that the Pharaoh would take them. They didn't have provisions enough to get them through the famine. They probably would have if they hadn't thrown their own brother into bondage and sold him into servitude. And because they chose to sell their brother into servitude, they themselves went into servitude. Had their brother been at home, he could have told them that the famine was coming. They would have prepared and they could have been a blessing to all the people around them, because they, through charity, would not have brought people into bondage. They would have been like Moses, who did not want to rule over. They would have been like Gideon, who would not rule over people. They would have been like Christ, who did not want to rule over their brothers, but helped them out in their time of need. And they would have had plenty to do it, because they would have prepared for the famine to come. You're not preparing for the famine to come. Because you're not coming together to set the table of the Lord. There is no table of the Lord for you because you won't set it for anybody else. You won't give enough to set the table of the Lord. You won't even come together to try to, you know, put a tablecloth on it. You are slothful in the ways of God. And you should be under tribute. Because that's what it says in the Bible. The slothful shall be under tribute. Only the diligent shall bear rule. Diligent in what? 
diligent in the things that the brothers of Joseph should have done. Not be jealous. Come together. Prepare for the famine to come. You're not doing it. You're not preparing for the famine to come. You're not doing anything to prepare for the famine to come. Except for maybe save yourself, you know, get that little cabin at the end of the road. And, you know, stockpile a bunch of freeze-dried stuff and beans and uh, maybe some ammo, you know. And and you might even make some friends that you might be able to depend upon if times get hard. And you imagine that you're seeking the kingdom. Boulder Dash. You're not seeking the kingdom. You're seeking to save yourself. If Christ came with that attitude, there'd have been no crucifixion. There'd been no Pentecost. There'd been no salvation. Rome would have won. And when Jerusalem was destroyed, all the Christians in it would have been destroyed because there wouldn't have been any Christians because they'd all still be Jews. And right now, you are not really seeking the kingdom of God. You're you're not seeking righteousness. You're seeking self-righteousness with your religious ideologies. Oh, we do this. Oh, we do that. Oh, you know, we, uh, you know, we make the sign of the cross and we genuflect and we count our moons and we, uh, wear our prayer shawls and we do all these things that that makes God happy. No, you don't love one another. You don't sacrifice for one another. You don't set the table of the Lord. You don't even try to set the table of the Lord with any consequence. So you should be in bondage. You cannot get out of bondage by you know, squeezing through the bars. You have to go through the door. And the door is Christ. And Christ came to serve. If you don't come together to serve, you don't come into one accord like the apostles. You don't create a daily ministration through faith, hope, and charity and the perfect law of liberty. You should be in bondage. Because you have abandoned God and His law. You know, the law of nature and nature's God. And you aren't doing what Christ said to do. And so therefore you should not be free. You would not, you will not be free. And you will not survive what freedom you imagine you have. That's just the way it is. That's, and I can't do anything about it except tell you in the law of nature, if you take the benefit, you incur the obligation. In the law of nature, If you shirk the responsibility, you lose the right. If you don't care about your neighbor's rights as much as you care about your own, you will lose your right. That's built into the law of nature. So there are people who say, oh, I don't want the benefit, so therefore I do not have the obligation. But they are not free. They are still bound by the generation before them. Because the kingdom of God is from generation to generation. And the kingdom of Nimrod is from generation to generation. You cannot set yourself free by saying, I'm not going to eat at his table anymore. And so therefore I am automatically free. You have to counterbalance that by accepting your responsibility to love your neighbor as yourself. You have, you know, people argue against tithing. That's like arguing against love. Because <laughs> tithing was a free will offering to the minister of your choice to go out and try to link people together in the ways of the kingdom of God. That's what tithing was all about. 
It wasn't so that some fat preacher could sit in a million-dollar home somewhere and have a swimming pool. It was to fund the effort of preaching this way of living as a government of the people, for the people, and by the people through free will offerings. So if you argue against tithing, you argue against Christ. You argue against love. You argue against charity. Remember the same word we see Jesus saying as love. When Paul says it, they translate it charity. And tithing was supporting the government through charity. You want to be free? You have to take back your obligation to God, which is your responsibility to love your neighbor as yourself, which means you have to go out and and send others out to tell them the ways of God. Most of your preachers that are rich, they're not telling the people the ways of God. They're telling them, you say the magic words and you're saved. You say that God loves you even though you're a sinner. That, But Jesus says, get ye from me, ye workers of iniquity. The, the modern preacher says, you can be a worker of iniquity. You can do no more ought for your parents. You can, you can sign up for social security and force your neighbor to take care of you if you have any kind of difficulty because you, you, you are secured in the fact that you will take a bite out of your neighbor so that you can have, you know, if you get in an accident or whatever it is, you can force your neighbor to take care of you. The number of people I've seen go to the hospital because, oh, well, we've got Medicare, we've got Medicaid, we've got insurance, we've got all these things. Now, insurance is a little bit different, but it's still not the assurance of Christ. The fact is, if you were doing what the early church was doing, you would have no need of health insurance. You would be exempt from Obamacare. You would be exempt. If you were doing, if your parents were doing what the early church did, that you wouldn't even be in bondage today. But because of your sloth, because of your parents' sloth, because of your avarice and wantonness, desiring benefits at the expense of your neighbor, public school, everything, you could have, your parents could have homeschooled you. But most of them didn't. Now, a few of you might have. But, okay, so now you didn't take those benefits and don't take, you know, I never went to public school. But I'm out here trying to get you people to think about seeking the kingdom of God, about setting the table of the Lord, about creating a daily ministration that operates through faith, hope, and charity and the perfect law of liberty so that ye might be saved. It's that simple. To think that you can figure out the legal system and find a way through the cracks and, and the maze of the legal system is eating of the tree of knowledge. You want to eat of the tree of life. And the tree of life is what Christ said it was. It's, it's really the Holy Spirit, which comes, you, you draw near the Spirit of God when you do as God does. God gives up his life that ye may live. He withdraws his right to force you to do what is right and gives you the choice to decide to do what is right. Christ did the same thing. The apostles came into one accord, set up a system that sets you free. They didn't put you in a box of religious, you know, rigmarole and legalism. People always like to call it legalism. He said, love one another. 
Same word. Paul would say, be charitable to one another. If you don't have that charity one to another, if you aren't creating a daily ministration that operates by faith, hope, and charity, you ain't seeking the kingdom of God in His righteousness. And you should not be saved. And you should not be free. You should be in bondage. And the government should oppress you with heavy, heavy taxes. Because you're a worker of iniquity. Because you're not a worker of righteousness. The early church did it. And they did it in very hard times. How come you aren't doing it? Oh, but I won't sign one of your documents. In other words, you won't bear witness that you want to do this. That's all we ask. Is that you bear witness that you want to start creating a table from which the faithful may eat of. You, 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 that's all you're, you sign when you sign a sacred purpose trust and gather in a congregation. You don't give up any rights except the right to some offering that you give up, whatever you choose. You have all your rights still intact. You're not even a member of a congregation. You're just congregating. But you say, it's like raising your right hand. I'm here. I'm here to seek the kingdom of God with these people. It's like AA. Except for you're addicted to aid. (laughs) Not alcohol. You're addicted to the assistance of the world. And now you want to break that addiction and only eat of the table of the Lord. And you say, well, I'm not even eating of the table of the world now. Well, maybe. But you're not going to always be the age you are now. You may end up, you know, needing assistance someday. But you don't gather because you fear, I may need assistance someday, so I should join, and then they will take care of me if bad things happen. You have to come with the intention of Christ. Christ knew bad things were going to happen to him, and he came anyway. He didn't come to be served. He didn't come to get the benefits of the kingdom. He came to be a benefit to others. That's coming in the name of Christ. That's coming in the name of Jesus. That's coming in the name of Yeshua. You say Yeshua, that doesn't make you coming in His name. You have to come with the spirit that He came with. The identity that He came with. The character that He came with. And then you will be coming in the name of the Lord. Because you will be a giver of life. You will be laying down your life. If you don't do that, you ain't going to make it. That's what you have to do. Because that is the path. That is the way. There is no other way but the way that Christ laid out for us. So you have to turn around from whatever you've been doing and start doing that. Or you will not be saved. Now, you're not saved by your works. You're saved by the path you choose to go. And that path is going to produce certain kinds of works. But that's the fruits of that path. But you're not choosing that. You're choosing, oh, we're going to go this way. I figured out this thing and I figured out that thing. No, you didn't figure out anything. You're just rattling the bars and squeezing, trying to squeeze through them. There is no other way but the way of Christ. So another topic that came up is uh, 
which is part of this is uh, you know discussion of 508, 501c3, and all this kind of stuff. And should you deduct contributions that you make to the church, or can you deduct contributions you make to the church? Well, according to what I read in the statutes, yes, you can. A church is automatically considered exempt, and you can automatically deduct those. But should you? And what is this 508? Is that a status or is that just a statute? Is that just a bar? Does that have anything to do with the real church? Well, we'll talk about that when we return to the keys of the kingdom. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, the appointment of Jesus Christ. We see appointments all the time. Moses appointed certain things and Jesus appointed certain things. And what does this mean, appointment? It means that you do something by the authority vested in somebody else. Well, Christ had all power and glory invested in him. And he was telling us to be this church. He was appointing to his little flock to be this ecclesia, this called out. And they refer to the the Levites in the Old Testament as the as the called out in the wilderness. Because that's what they were. The Levites were called out, but the Israel was kicked out. So there was this difference. Israel was one thing, and the called out, the Levites, were this other thing. The Levites, there are certain characteristics of the Levites. They did not own property in their own name. No Levite could sell his property without another Levite coming and redeeming it at any time. And so, therefore, it's very clear by that that the Levites did not own property in their own name. They were not, they had no inheritance in the land. They could not pass down 
the lawful title to land from generation to generation. Yet they had land. They had lands in common, they call them. And they had them all over Israel. Not any particular tribal area. And all over in every town had lands set aside outside them that were lands held in common. By who? By the Levites. They had a right to that land. But they couldn't individually sell it. And so that it it's kind of like a cemetery. Cemetery doesn't belong to anybody particular. It belongs to everybody. And that was very important in the status of the Levite who was the called out in the wilderness, the church in the wilderness. There were other things that the, they actually belonged to God. They could actually eat of the offerings that were made to God were made to them. They were given to them. They could eat of them. They could eat them all up and get to be fat monks in, in monasteries on land that was untaxable. Or they could turn around and go back and try to serve the people, help the people come together, help the people settle disputes, help the people do all kinds of things that made the people stronger. They they had choices. The more they helped the people, the more the people would give to them. And they would give to individual Levites who would receive their offerings. So they had this extra sort of resource in the people. And they had land that they could be independent of the people. They didn't need the people to survive, but they, in order to do their job, they needed the support of the people. And that's where tithing came in. They didn't, they couldn't force the people to tithe to some central body. They tithe to individual Levites that they chose to tithe to. And that kept the Levites so that they were always trying to serve the people. And the highest Levite, how did you get to be a higher Levite over other Levites? Did they have a Sanhedrin? Did they appoint things from a king? No. You pick the minister that you would tie to. And he picked the minister he would tie to. And so, if you were looking for public servants, the liturgy of the church means public service, you would constantly be picking men who were better servants than you. You would want the best servant. You'd want to support the best servant of society. You know, not the the, the servant who makes everybody feel good, but the, the one who actually serves society and strengthens society. So these are some of the constructs that we see in the Levites. Hold all things in common. Uh, they had no inheritance in the land as individual estates. Uh, they belonged to God. They could eat at the altar. These are things that they could do. All those things the early church could do as well. They held all things in common. Not to all the people. They were to return every man to his possessions and every man to his family according to prophecy. So it wasn't all the people held all things in common. The church, the believers, the called out by Christ and appointed by Christ to be the leaders of a kingdom that does not exercise authority one over the other. In other words, had no forced taxes. Only free will offerings. Whether you want to call them tithes, or, you know, oblations, or free will offerings, or Corbin, doesn't really matter. Those are descriptive words of charitable actions of the people, for the people, by the people, 
to the ministers that were called out and trained by Christ to be the called out, the church of Christ. And he appointed unto them a kingdom, a right to exist as a government. And Rome recognized that Jesus was a king and had the right to make that appointment. Now, the question is, where is that church today? Where Where is it at? Is it in the Vatican? Is it in uh, Constantinople? Is it down there on the corner of Fifth and Elm? Is it the Baptist church? Is it the Methodist church? Is it, are all those even churches? Do they meet the criteria of Christ? Because he laid down, if you want to be one of my disciples, to be one of my ministers of the church that I'm going to appoint to the little flock, after I take it away from the Pharisees, the kingdom, you have to do this, 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 and this. Modern church ministers do not do most of those things. Some of them don't do any of those things. And we wrote a whole book about what some of those things look like and lots of articles, so you can go look at that. But anyway, that's the church appointed by Christ. If you look up in the definition of a church, that it is established by Christ for His purposes. And what is His purpose? That you might be saved. And that church can appoint a daily ministration. It can appoint... uh, uh, ministers to be over a credit union. It can do all kinds of things as a separate jurisdiction. And uh, But first you have to learn how that kingdom operates. Have you learned how that kingdom operates? Are you walking in the way? Well, most of you are not. You're not setting the table of the Lord. You're not there to serve one another. You don't even gather together. Except in churches that tell you that you're already saved because you thought a thought. You have saved yourself by thinking a thought. By believing in an idea, you saved yourself. You don't actually believe in Jesus because you're not doing what Jesus said. If you really believed in Jesus, you would keep his commandments. You would not covet your neighbor's goods through benefactors who exercise authority. You would not be slothful in the ways of Christ. You would be laying down your life daily in sacrifice for one another. And you're not doing that. You're not setting the table of the Lord. You're hiding out behind your religious doctrines. Or you're maybe just hiding out in the woods or out in the desert or out somewhere. And you haven't repented. You aren't turning around. And your baptism just got you all wet. You know, we talked about Hippolytus uh, to some of the people that uh, I deal with. Hippolytus was one of the early church fathers. And uh, I put a little bit of an article up and some of his writings up. A catacomb was somebody who wanted to become a Christian and get baptized. They had to live as a Christian for three years before they could get baptized. Now, he said, and some people ask, well, what happened if we're killed trying to live as a Christian before those three years are up. He says, well, then you're baptized in blood. Now, I know a lot of people think that if you don't get baptized and dunked in water, you're not saved. But Jesus said, you know, I baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist said, I only baptize you with water, but there's one who comes after me to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And here's Hippolytus saying you'd be baptized with blood, which is mostly water. They knew there was no magic in the water. There's no magic in the words. That's witchcraft. 
That's nonsense. There's the Holy Spirit or not the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit giveth life. It doesn't take life away. So even if you... But you don't have the Holy Spirit. Oh, you can get emotional at big meetings. But that isn't the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is this this spirit that draws you towards the ways of God. And it gives you power. You're not going to see the miracles that you're going to need to see unless you start heading in the direction that Christ said to head in, which was a direction where you loved one another. And that love is the word for charity. You have to be charitable to one another. You've been biting one another for so long. Just stop biting one another is not enough. Now you have to do the reverse of biting one another. You have to give to one another. In order to give to one another, you won't be able to do that unless you forgive one another. Well, you aren't forgiven unless you forgive. And if you forgive, then why aren't you setting the table of the Lord? It's a catch-22. You you cannot fake Christianity. you got to really do it. you got to be a doer of the Word. You can't just say, Lord, Lord. You can't just say, I believe. You can't just say you accept Jesus and not keep His commandments. And, of course, one of those first commandments is that you're not going to be making other men gods over you. Which you've already done. Now you have to reverse that. You can't undo that. God can undo that. He can loose that. But it's over there in the natural law of God. If you think it's okay to bite one another, you're going to be devoured. If you want to not be devoured, then you have to be charitable to one another. The reverse of biting one another. You have to take a bite out of yourself and give it to others. You have to get back to charity. You have to get back to actual love. Charity and love equal words. Same word in the Greek. You don't love your neighbor lest you're giving charitable sacrifice of yourself, giving of your blood. Then you're going to be baptized in that blood. That willingly giving of your blood. Christ willingly gave up all his blood. Every drop till water come out of his heart. Can you do that? Well, you don't even have to do that. But you have to turn around and start the other way. If you've been biting your neighbor, if your parents have been biting the neighbor to get the benefits they want, the Social Security, the free school, the Medicare, the Medicaid, the welfare, whatever it is, now you have to do the opposite. Bite out of yourself and give that blood, that flesh to others. You cannot be saved unless you eat of the flesh of Jesus Christ who gave willingly. In other words, you have to do what Christ did. You have to lay down your life to be saved. But people, they, they won't lay down their life for their little pet doctrine. But I love my little doctrine. I love my little ideas about Jesus. I want to keep my little ideas about Jesus. That's transference. That's not love of God. That's love of self. Because you created those doctrines in your own mind when you were up there climbing around in the tree of knowledge. And you invented this doctrine, this religion. And you joined that. So anyway, we were going to talk about 501c3, 508. (laughs) 508 is a statute. 508c1. And uh, it's a statute that says that churches are mandatorily don't have to file. They 
it isn't a permission. It's that they just don't have to file because, and 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 you think it's because they passed the, uh, put in there that the, that the in the Bill of Rights that uh, the government uh, can't establish religion, so they can't establish that you're a church by making you file. Now that's actually the technical bars of it, but the reality is. The devil wants to hold you and the devil knows the, the demonic forces of the universe, whatever you want to call them. You can picture them as a little guy up on your shoulder or whatever, but that's an actual real quantum force in the universe. Wants you to follow the law of nature so that you become under his authority. Like Cain wanted you under his authority. Nimrod wanted you under his authority. Saul wanted you under his authority. He didn't at first, but he was tempted by that and fell to that temptation. David was tempted by that, but he repented. Caesars seldom repented. (laughs) And modern rulers of the world seldom repent. You might see some do it. Someday. And, and, And some of the most unexplainable, wicked of wicked leaders could suddenly repent. You know, like kind of the Darth Vader story. (laughs) He suddenly repented and sacrificed himself for his son. Wow. If that isn't a biblical idea, I don't know what is. (laughs) But you, you don't know. But you don't have to worry about that. What you have to worry about Are you laying down your life for your fellow man? Do you love your neighbor as yourself? If you don't, you're not saved. And if that love does not transmit into charity, you're not saved. You know, helping out your grandson or, you know, maybe a nephew or something like that, that's great. But that's loving those who love you. There's no grace in that. You you should have done that anyway. That's like... um, if you were caught in quicksand, you know, and you're sinking down in quicksand, and uh, somebody comes along and they want to help you, if they put a life vest on you, would you float on the top of that quicksand? Or would that quicksand pull down the life vest too? Interesting experiment. Would Would that keep you afloat? It might. But it won't get you out of the quicksand. You see? So, if you help out your own family members and your close friends, that's good. That might keep you afloat. But that isn't going to get you out of the quicksand. The only way to get out of the quicksand is to help those that don't love you. Don't know you. Don't care about you. You know, you have to be the good Samaritan. See, Christ is telling you all these things. He's telling you stories. You're just not putting it together. In order to be the good Samaritan, you have to care about people you don't even know. And you you got to spend time and energy going out and helping them. And you say, well, i got to do this work here. Well, you can take a portion and help somebody who is out trying to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know... Like, uh, oh, I can't even think of their names. I won't mention their names anyway, even if I could think of them. There's a, there's a dozen of these ministers out there, and for some reason I can't recall their name. I guess if I speak it, <laughs> it would be evil into the world. Because they are evil men. 
They're heavily rewarded by people. But the people who are rewarding them are dead already. They're dead to Christ. They don't know Christ. They're nice. They wear nice clothes. They say nice things. They're sweet people, but they're dead. Let the dead tithe to the dead. You need to tithe to the living. You need to give to the living. You need to cast your bread upon the waters. This changes your place in the universe. It draws you near the tree of life. It brings you close to that source of all miracles. Now, you can't do it like you're going to, you know, buy your way into the kingdom of God. It has to really come from the heart, which really means you have to look at your heart, your soul. You want to see something really scary? Look at your soul. Look at all the selfishness, selfishness, bitterness, unforgiveness that is still residing in your soul. And that's scary. That's ugly. But you have to look at that. And God will go with you to look at that and clean out your temple of all the demons of trauma that are in your temple. All the anger, all the impatience, all the sloth, all the avarice, all the wantonness that is in you. That has made you do some things that you are not proud of. That's right. It made you do those things. Because those events, those things that you did that were bad... That's the bars. That does not lock the door. What locks the door is your refusal to see the truth. Your denial of the truth about yourself, about your relationships with others, about your selfishness. That's what puts you in prison and locks the door. If you want that door unloosed, if you want that door opened up, you have to be willing to look at yourself. Your own anger, your own judgment, your own unforgiveness, your own selfishness, your own sloth, your own avarice. You have to look at that. And the way to see that is to come together and forgive one another and give to one another. And, you know, you know, I, I, I don't know how to express this. I, I see, you know, I was in the army. Uh, I've worked in uh, mill type jobs, um, you know, processing lumber, uh, worked in the woods, worked in uh, lots of different things, lots of different positions. And, you know, you get you get a dozen men or two dozen or a hundred men together working and it's all men working. You get a certain level of, you know, like it's a bunch of steers and they're trying to figure out pecking order. It's like putting a bunch of bulls in. And they they try to find their position, their hierarchy of power. That's just the way men are. And they chide one another and they harass one another and they um, they do all kinds of things. Uh, that some things that are rather despicable to one another. Trying to find that pecking order. Can that you know, they, they tease the new guy, you know, it's it's simple little things like that. But they're trying to test one another out. And uh 
that's what happens when you get all these guys together. Now, if you get a congregation together, you're going to have people that have a little bit of Saul in them. You're going to have people that have a little bit of Dathan in them. Uh, you're going to have, um, you know, you have other people that have bring in the influence of evil. You know, the doctrinal evils of Satan where he's trying to get people to follow an idea rather than, which all ideas come out of the king, uh, the, the tree of knowledge. All ideas come out of the tree of knowledge. All idols are, are carved from the wood of the tree of knowledge. They can't carve it from the tree of life. They carve it from the tree of knowledge. You know, I'm speaking kind of metaphors so you can kind of see the principles here. You want to be eating of the tree of life. But people who are eating of the tree of knowledge will come into your congregation and try to get you to follow their knowledge, their ideology, their idol, their philosophy, their religious doctrine. You know, see, all these things are the same thing. It's all from this heady uh, mental apparition of their own personal calculations of what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is evil. That's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They're going to try to figure it out intellectually. Big temptation. But you want the tree of life, which is the tree of revelation. The tree that... And how do you know that you're, you're, the revelations you're receiving are of God? Well, it has certain characteristics, just like the law of nature. It has the characteristics of caring about others. It has the characteristic of sacrificing itself. It has the characteristic of giving you choice. Allowing you choice, let's put it that way. Not trying to make the choices for you. Not telling you what you have to do. Now, it will tell you principles. You know, if you're back to what we said at the beginning of the show. If you you want to bomb the bank because there are five robbers in there and 20 hostages. And you want to, you want to kill the robbers more than you want to save the hostages. You'll throw a grenade in there to kill those dirty, dirty rotten bank robbers. I mean, when you put it in those terms, that's obviously insane. But now if you say, let's invade Iraq. <laughs> people say, oh yeah, let's do that. I actually know somebody who claims to be a preacher, a minister, and he knows a lot of stuff. He's a very bright guy. Been around, I've known him for 50 years. After the 911, he wanted to, when they supposedly were blaming this somehow on Iraq, which is completely a crock, he says we should just nuke them. And then we'll clean up the mess. Just, just nuke them. That's what, that was his plan. <laughs> it's man of God. You know, that, that's right out of Caesar's mouth. <laughs> you know, crazy Caesar. You know, there were lots of Caesars. That's insane. It, it and your, the whole battle is, is not based in the spirit. You will not win that battle. You will lose and lose and lose and lose and lose. And it will just create a pattern of loss. Because you're a murderer. You know you're going to kill the innocent. But you don't care. You just want to destroy the evil so bad that you're willing to destroy the innocent at the same time. Now, I'm, 
I understand that when battle comes upon you, you can't be, you know, uh, examining every uh, every guy who comes to destroy you. <laughs> you just can't do that. Uh, you you just shoot the guy who's coming at you to shoot you. But uh, it's not about that. It's about the spirit from which you're moving. And even in that, even in the situation of battle, you want to be divinely inspired as to what you're doing. How will you know? Well, you've been eating of the tree of knowledge for so long. You need to start eating of the tree of life. Because that's where revelation is. not what I tell you that's going to enlighten you about natural law, legal systems. You know, i got a whole book, Covenants of the Gods, on how the legal system works. But I tell you at the beginning of that book that this is not giving you the answer. I'm just showing you. I'm rattling the bars. That's the way I always refer to it. It's like you're running your a stick along the bars and you hear the bar go ding, 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 ding. ding. <laughs> and then people say, oh my gosh, there's bars there. We're in prison. <laughs> We're locked up. We're back in the bondage of Egypt. What are we going to do? Well, it doesn't tell you in the book. It just tells you to realize that you're in bondage. And it tells you how you got there. So that now you get to repent and seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Which means go the other way. And so that's what you have to do. We we want to give life back to zombies. And so that they live again. We'll be right back and tell you how to do that. So, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. Um, so, 508 is just a statute that says that churches are mandatorily do not have to file. A 1023 is the form you file with the IRS if you want a determination letter from the IRS, which could benefit you as an individual or whatever. Because people, once you have that letter, they have a guarantee that they're contributions are tax deductible and that would lower their taxes and some people say well why do i want my lower if i give to christ i don't want to get rewarded by the government well the reality is is that if you if you give to the church and you deduct it i'm not telling you to do this i'm just saying if you chose to do this deduct it from your taxes you will get more money back but then you could simply take that money and give that away too to the church or to some other charity or whatever you don't have to be rewarded. What it does is give you the opportunity of making more choices about what to do with your sacrifice. And that that could be a good thing. It could be a bad thing. It depends on your intent. Intent is what makes the difference. I'm just saying that these things exist in the world if you're in the world. If you're a slave and 
you, everybody around you is starving. If you're in a prison camp and everybody around you is starving, you can still take the little food they give you and share it with somebody else. You can choose to do that. That's your choice. So, you don't, the church can't apply to the IRS for a 1023 without jeopardizing because that application is going to put it under the authority of the IRS because now the IRS can withdraw their letter of recognition at any time whatsoever. The real church offers something because see that's that's a pagan church. Once you understand that all the benefits you get from the world you know, free education and food and food stamps and welfare and and social security, all these things are benefits from the world. That that's your church. Those people who administer those programs, that's your ministers, because the early church provided all those things through faith, hope, and charity. The government provides that through men who call themselves benefactors but exercise authority. You have left the church established by Jesus Christ already, no matter whether you're a Baptist or a Methodist or a Lutheran or a Jehovah Witness, you already left the church established by Christ. You do not go to the church established by Christ for your daily ministration, for your free bread. You go to the church established by the world. Social Security Administration, whatever. You know, all those different bureaucracies with all those different clergy, I mean clerks, who minister those systems. And that's your church. That's where you go. You go to Caesar and say, give me your free bread. Instead, of, See, Hippolytus said that when you finally did get baptized as a catacomb, you had to renounce all the works of the adversary. All the benefits of the adversary. You couldn't, you couldn't pray to, at his altars anymore. You could only pray at the altar of Christ. The altar of the church for your free bread. If you had a need. That's, that, you've already picked your religion. See? So, the church, if the church prays to that altar, then it becomes an altar of that church. If he goes and incorporates, he becomes an altar of that church. His ministers, if they are receiving the benefits of from that altar, they cannot eat of that altar. They cannot apply, they cannot have a social security number and eat of that altar and of the altar of God. And see, the Levites, the ministers of Christ, could eat of the altar of Christ. But they cannot eat of that altar and the altar of Christ. They cannot serve two masters. Remember, the Levites were subject. They belonged to God. The ministers of Jesus Christ that he appointed, they belonged to God. They were servants of God. They could not eat at the table of the gods of the world and the table of Christ. All these ministers out here today do that. Now, how does the licensed minister in the church do that? They're simply appointed to do the job of the minister who has left that system and come into one accord with other men. That's very hard to do. If if we're going to have more ministers that we train up, and men want to train up, they have to come into a, a accord with the ministers that we have now. 
they start that by becoming a minister and working daily with all the other ministers in a congregation of ministers. And then they learn as they go. That is that is the university they attend. <laughs> that is the school uh, that they they attend and must graduate from in order to go on to the next step. Hopefully we will teach these people that we won't teach them, but they will be taught by the Holy Spirit to live by revelation of God. Not, not a simple task. You have to do a lot of scrubbing in your own personal temple to get there. So 501c3, all churches are considered 501c3 whether they file or not. That's directly out of the IRS documentation. If they're 501c3 and considered 501c3, the, the charitable deductions to them are automatically deductible. If they come along later and decide that this is not really a church, they cannot do that unless that church has filed a 1023, that church has never filed a 1023. They can set in process a means by which that church is ruled by a court not to be a church. When Christ was brought into the court of Pontius Pilate, Pontius Pilate would not hear the case because the court didn't even have jurisdiction. They're going to look at what the ordained ministers of the church are doing to determine whether they have jurisdiction or not because even the courts cannot establish a church or not a church. If they find blatant evidence or cognitive evidence that the church is not a church, they could rule that we don't see this as a church and we don't recognize it as a church and the IRS can act upon that. But if you, in order to fight this battle, you don't need a legal genius. You need the Holy Spirit. And you need to be able to go in, because we don't rule against flesh and blood. We're not going to argue a case based on legality. They already say the church is separate from the state. They say it all the time. We just have to conform to Christ so that we become that church. And then when we go into these high places, we will bring the Holy Spirit. And I have seen that this works. But I can't make it work. Only the Holy Spirit can. I can't fake it. What you have to do is trust in God. Trust in the ways of God. Follow the ways of God. You have to start laying down your life for others. You don't have to lay down your life for me. But you have to lay it down for somebody else. You have to cast your bread upon the waters. You have to reverse the process of natural law that has brought you into bondage and locked the door. If you want those doors opened again, if you want to be free, you have to want your neighbor to be free as much as you want to be free. You can't just wander about. You can't just go to the end of the road and hide out. You have to actually care about others as much as you care about yourself. I mean, Polybius said it so well, hundreds of years before Christ. This was a hot debate at the time of Christ. And this is the context of the history in which Christ rose up to speak. Polybius, who was a historian of historians and, and, you know, a Greek who worked for the Romans, said the masses continue with an appetite for benefits and the habit of receiving them by way of a rule of force and violence. What is, what, what is the whole thing about John the Baptist? Until John the Baptist, everybody was trying to establish the kingdom of heaven by force, by violence. 
He's discontinuing where Polybius left off. But he said, no, if you have two coats and your neighbor has none, share. Do the same in meats. He's saying, do this by charity. If you're not trying to do this by charity, if you're not gathering together to provide the benefits of government by charity, you're not seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. I don't care what you else you say you believe. If you have charity, you don't have charity, you have nothing. If you don't have that same word charity, same word love, you have nothing. That's why you gather, is so that you can have charity in a meaningful way, not just with those that love you, but with those you don't even know. That's why it has to be a network, where you don't push a red button, but you push the blue button. You, you, you give in hopes that it will come back to you. He goes on to say, the people having grown accustomed to feed at the expense of others and depend for their livelihood on the property of others, institute the rule of violence. And now, uniting their forces, massacre, banish, plunder, until they degenerate again into perfect savages and find once more a master and a monarch. This was before the first emperor. He was saying this. They were already going down that path. Before the first commander-in-chief of the military. Before the first uh, Supreme Court of Rome was established. Polybius was saying this is where they were going. This is the same thing Samuel. They have already rejected God. And they were going the other way. You want to be free. You have to turn around and go the other way. Instead of having an appetite for benefit. You need an appetite for charity. Which is the opposite of a benefit. It is it is the giving away. You have to have a desire to give away. Instead of having a desire to force and, and compel and coerce people into thinking your way, you have to have a desire to let people make their own choices. You have to do the reverse. You have to go the other way in all these different aspects. You have to stop not only forcing others to provide for you, but you have to now forcibly decide to provide for others. That's reversing the direction. Otherwise, you're just in the quicksand, in the mire, with a life vest on. It doesn't get you out of the mire. You want to get out of the mire, you have to go the other way. You can't just turn around. You actually go the other way. You can't just stop taking the benefits. You have to start becoming a benefit to others. And you say, oh, I don't have much money, and I, you know, I don't have much time, and I don't have... Those are excuses. That keeps you staying the dead. And you go bury the dead. We are in the zombie apocalypse. You look out in the world, we see all these things going on in the news. These people, you think like, how can they even think that way? It's like they're brain dead. Isn't that a zombie? Brain dead. The dead, you know, marching in the streets. Biting one another. Devouring one another. Oh, I mean, it's, it's just everywhere. 
I mean, there's no place to go. It's the zombie apocalypse. There's no escape. You need the Holy Spirit. You cannot have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will not be there for you unless you reverse this natural process of biting one another to giving your blood, your life for others. In order to do that, you want to do it with a certain amount of discretion. I mean, we have people who want to come here and learn how to be a minister. Well, I'm not going to take on more without the approval of other ministers. Because I want to empower others to make that choice. So if you want to come here, talk to all the other ministers. Get them to come to say, yeah, you come. And then we'll we'll see. You have to get the approval of others. You have to get them on board. This is all a part of coming into one accord. You have to bear your soul to one another. You have to talk turkey with one another. And then maybe we can bring you in. Now Jesus, Jesus was Jesus. He, all power was given to him. But I'm not Jesus. I have to do things in one accord with other ministers. That's why Jesus Jesus was out on alone, alone a lot of the times. He went out and did things alone and separated himself alone. But when he sent his ministers out, he sent them out two by two because they always had to go out and do things in one accord. Because that challenges us to look at things as one instead of individually. God lets us be individuals. And I've always said that this is a walk where we learn to stand alone, but we also must learn to stand alone together. Because in trying to do it together will challenge us, you know. It's not, yeah, you know, you pat me on my back and I'll pat you on your back. It's No, it's scrub. <laughs> it's about scrubbing. It's about getting clean. It's about washing up. It's about changing inside to the very depth of our being. And one of my favorite quotes is uh, from the book uh, by Rube Long where he says, Many men came to the desert to change it and were changed by it. Well, the fact is, in seeking the kingdom of God, you are changed by the search, by that quest, by that effort of looking for the kingdom of God and seeking it. You are changed. That That is what seeking the kingdom is all about. It's not like you're going to find it because you do such a good job seeking. It's in the seeking is part of the process. And so that's where we have to go and, and turn around to. I was going to talk a little bit about uh, a number of things. Uh, you know, uh, in one of our shows that we just did uh, a week or so ago, we talked about charity and how important charity was and how that's made was one of the things that makes a nation great is that it doesn't run on force and violence and biting one another but it runs on charity if you want the world to change you have to change you have to be the change if you want to be free you have to set others free and you have to become this man of charity now bill gates and uh, and the gates foundation their charity the foundation is and warren buffett he gives billions away to charity and, you know, like this whole oil pipeline that everybody is against. And, I mean, there's so many. It's such a complex issue. 
you know, what's this oil going to? Is it going to refineries to run the uh, to run the, the industries of the United States, or is it being sold crude oil abroad so that people will make millions of dollars? You know, is it necessary for you know they're using eminent domain here? Is this to strengthen America or is it to strengthen rich men? Well, Warren Buffett, he right now every day that the pipeline is is delayed, he makes millions, even billions of dollars. Because of the fact that he's he's moving it all by rail that's not being moved by pipeline. <laughs> so so he's making mega bucks. Every day is delayed. He makes more in an in ten minutes than it costs to keep protesters there all month. And so you think that that's where they're getting some of their funding? <laughs> Maybe. It's a complicated thing. You know, this whole global warming thing, all kinds of stuff, pros and cons, and everybody has their idea about that. Snowden says that global warming is an invention of the CIA, and he was a guy on the inside. He says that that, that was an invention. And now, there is going to be climate change, but is man caused? Well, in a way, maybe it is man-caused because it's your sins that are bringing it about. And it would go back to what we talked about at the beginning. Israel was not ready for the for the famine that was coming because it was full of jealousy and envy and pride. And it sold the prophet that God had sent them, their own brother, into bondage. And so they did not have the means of survival but to sell themselves. Now, you're already sold into bondage, but it's going to get worse. Because evil wants you destroyed on the face of the earth. And he's going to get a good chance to do it. Because you're not seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So I would encourage everybody to join with us and try to seek it. We need your rebuke and your love and your patience with us. The same as you may need our rebuke and our love and our patience with you. There's a maximum of law in the agreement of the contracting parties. The rule is to regard the intention rather than the words. So it's not even the words of the contract that are bringing you into bondage. It's your intention. So what is your intent? Is your intent to love others or to save yourself? Are you preparing to save yourself or are you preparing to save others? Are you setting the table of the Lord or not? If you accept the benefit and you did not reject it, you are in bondage. You may not be able to reject it if you don't set the table of the Lord because you have no other place to go. You are the foolish virgins who use up your oil, your time, your energy now and are not gathering together. You will be left out. And your children will be left out because of your sloth. You need to consent to the ways of God. In Genesis 12, 2, it says, And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. In Genesis 17:20 it says, and of and as for Ishmael, I have heard thee. Behold, 
I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. Twelve princes shall he beget and I will make him a great nation. The problem is those two words great there, they're different words in the Hebrew. They're not the same word. Great nation. The second one means large Numerous. I mean, you see that in that thing. Multiply him. Lots of people in his nation. Lots of people. That word nation is translated nation, Gentile, even heathen in the, in the Old Testament. But he's saying large. The first word great, back in Genesis 12, 2, and I will make of thee a great nation. That word great is not the word for large. It's the word for nourishing. That's right, nourishing nation. I will make you a nourishing nation. That's what makes a nation great, is that you nourish others. You give life to others. You don't take life away. You give life to others. And what better way to give life than to give the real gospel? Not this fables, Christian fables gospel, but the real gospel. Of laying down your life for others in ways that strengthen the poor. It is no virtue to be poor. You should not be rewarded for being poor. You should, you know, you need to suffer the consequences of your poverty. When it says, blessed are the poor. The word there, poor. It actually means the beggarly. The humble. The ones who will ask. This is why we, when somebody wants aid from the church. They should ask. That's coming with the poor in spirit. The beggarly in spirit. They realize, I've screwed up. I've gotten into trouble. I need help. My family needs help. And I'm taking off my hat and I'm asking for help. They need to pray for help. It's for their soul that we say that. That's why Christ said the beggarly. The willing to ask Ask and you shall receive. He didn't say just get poor and we'll take care of you. Because it changes the whole pattern of behavior. Because you come with hat in hand to ask. So you want to be a great nation? You want to be just big? You want to be powerful? Because there's other words. Or you want to be nourishing? That's what John the Baptist was preaching. That's what Christ was preaching. And that's what we preach. And until... We preach something else. (laughs) Peace on your house. And may God be with you. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, 
books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net.